Greetings, listeners, and welcome to the launch of Season 2 Montessori in Action podcast. We had a fabulous first season during a most unusual school year, unusual in Montessori and in education at large. Now we open our second season with a conversation about books. I'm joined by two authors, Mariana Bissonnette, who has written Babies Build Toddlers, and Erica Moretti, who has written The Best Weapon for Peace, Maria Montessori, Education and Children's Rights. Mariana's book, Babies Build Toddlers, is a lovely, beautifully illustrated book full of first plane of development information. I've already given it as a new baby present to some friends. And Erica Moretti's book, Erica's a historian, and she explores Dr. Montessori as a pacifist and her larger vision, um, even beyond Montessori education. These two authors, um, as full disclosure listeners, um, have brought me into the conversation because I am also launching a book this month that is entitled Montessori in Action, Building Resilient Schools. And they turn the questions that I ask them to me, back to me. So it is a conversation between the three of us talking about these new books that we offer to our Montessori community. Enjoy. Welcome, Erica and Mariana, to Montessori in Action podcast. I'm so pleased you're here. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be sitting here with two other authors in different parts of the United States right now and thinking into books that you're writing. Um, so maybe, Erica, you could just start by just a little brief introduction of yourself for our listeners. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here today. Uh, I'm a historian and I've been interested in the life of Maria Montessori since I was, uh, I think, 24. It's taken me a while to write this book, uh, to find a sort of an original angle. Uh, I was a PhD student at Brown University, and it's there that I got sort of like the bulk of my research done. And uh, I'm interested in Montessori and pacifism, and that's what my research is about. My book is coming out in a month, and that's the topic. Exciting. And how about you, Mariana? Sure. Um, I am Mariana Bissonnette, and I just self-published my book, Babies Build Toddlers, in December of 2020. Um, I had been in the classroom um, for a while in three to six Montessori, and uh, when I had my first child, I realized that there was a really big gap in support uh, for parents, mm -hmm. especially as a Montessori teacher. I thought I was had some background in parenting that was going to allow me to uh, feel comfortable once I became a parent, but um, it became apparent that uh, I needed a lot more support. Um, and so I started a parent support program. And from that program, I started taking really detailed notes about what people were asking about at each of the infant visits. And I started noticing that everybody was asking the same thing. Um, and so they started asking for my compilation of notes and I realized that I had the foundation for my book. Um, I spent three years writing it and then I self-published it about six months ago. Wow, impressive. That's so exciting on both of your fronts. And you really kind of um, let our listeners know what prompted you to write the book, especially you, Mariana, talking about how you kept saying the same things over. Erica, do you want to say a little more about how when, at Brown you fell into the topic that you are writing about? 
Absolutely. Uh, actually, it was before Brown. Uh, I was taking a class at the University of Florence and I uh, was assigned a book by two Italian historians, Valeria Paola Babini and Luisa Lama. Mm. And uh, the book is in Italian, but uh, lots of excerpts from the book have been translated into English. And there are, the two historians are just amazing writers. And the book premise was that Montessori was uh, uh, really active in femini, in the feminist movement in Italy until 908. And, you know, the archival resources were really, um, I mean, extensive and well waved into the narrative. I just fell in love with the book. Mm -hmm. So I figured that what I wanted to do was a book that was as good as, if not better than, nice. <laughs> than that book. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, I mean, it was a big challenge mm -hmm. and uh, I just didn't know what to do. So I started going to archives in Rome. Uh, and the problem with Montessori is that her archives are scattered throughout the world. And I ended up being mm. uh, uh, in uh, Chennai for a summer, uh, spent lots of time in Amsterdam, in the US and in Italy. But I started with Italy. I'm Italian and it was the easiest uh, starting point. And uh, I was at the, uh, at the time it was called the Secret Vatican Archive. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> I know. Uh, secret means like uh, separate in Latin. They recently changed the name, which makes it much less exciting. It's just the Apostolic Archive right now. That's still pretty good. I know. It's very dumb brown, right? <laughs> but uh, the idea was that uh, Montessori uh, was writing to the papacy. And I mean, I knew that from some uh, secondary sources on the topic. What she wanted to create was this uh, organization for children affected by war during World War One. And, you know, the beginner's luck, I found a lot of the Montessori writes to Pope Benedict XV uh, in 1918, where she asks for money to start this organization to save war-affected children. And it was just an amazing letter. Uh, you know, I, I just, you know, the first day I was there, I found it. Mm. You know, lots of historians in Italy have gone to that archive. I don't know what got into me. I just found it. And from there, <laughs> I elaborated my old book, which is that Montessori is as much as an educator as she is a pacifist and a humanitarianist. And that was sort of like the beginning of how I started thinking about uh, that kind of thesis. I'm having such an image of you in like the secret archives, <laughs> reading in Italian, these original, I'm imagining like when you were a child and you did a play and you like took a match and burnt the edge of a paper right, to make right. it look old. Like exactly. I'm imagining you're reading these old documents that were done in pen and ink in Montessori's own hand. Is that true? Did you read those things? I did. I did read those things. But it's also like it gets better because the letter on top has a handwritten note that says uh, that says something about Montessori's personality, I think. It says like uh, Montessori like wanted these organizations to be funded by the papacy. Uh, we do not fund organizations that are not already up and running. She did not take it well. And I just love that, you know, <laughs> she did not take it well. <laughs> She did not take it right, well. Right. So it's really that. It's that kind of, you know, finding the, the you know, manuscript that's uh, engaging and fun to read. Oh, wow. That's that is really exciting. Um, okay, my head is, is spinning just imagining you in Italy and um, imagining on the on the West Coast as you're um, Mariana, you're working with all of these young new parents um, using this method that has been around for such a long time to help sort of ease a transition of being new parents. So, you know, sort of all coming together. I wonder for either of you if anything unexpected came up during the writing of the book for either of you. Well, I don't think you've had an opportunity to introduce your book, Elizabeth. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, well. <laughs> you also wrote one, didn't you? <laughs> it's true. It's true, listeners. I have brought these two authors together because I am also launching a book in July called Montessori in Action, Building Resilient Montessori Schools, which is my great love of uh, implementing Montessori, particularly in the public sector, but just across um, making it accessible for everyone. And so just sort of unlatching the top of my head and pouring out um, the years of um, experiences, tools, resources that have been developed by really talented people in the field so that Montessorians can cease putting energy into um, reinventing the wheel and put more energy into the other aspects of the vehicle to make it go for children, that we keep slowing our own process down by having each new startup school, imagining they need to iterate all of these tools. And so much like the method itself, where Dr. Montessori created these materials, you know, over a hundred years ago now for you to use, you just have to learn how to use them and you're good to go. Um, and so offering some tools and resources to schools saying, these have already been built. You just need to learn how to use them. You're good to go. Uh, so that was sort of the the seed thought or the passion for behind my book is just trying to support ease in implementation in the hopes that it will um, create wider access for more children and families to be able to um, have Montessori education. I that love was that. Very, very <laughs> sneaky of you to throw, throw that question in there. No, I love but that. But... As I'm asking about unexpected things, that was unexpected. No, but I love that because I think one of the things that's so powerful about the, especially the Montessori teacher training, is you spend your training learning these tried and true materials. And so you can spend your classroom time really focused on the child and where they are in development. And so what you're describing is sort of doing the same thing, but for the whole school community, that they can actually spend their school time hours not reinventing the wheel, as you say. Um, so that's lovely. Mm -hmm. So back to your question about unexpected things. <laughs> I, um, I, I guess for me, one of the unexpected turns, um, so when I was I had all these notes from all these visits and um, people were asking very similar questions because of course, infants develop along a pretty predictable path that it's not surprising that around four months, because there's a big developmental shift in sleep, a lot of families wanted to talk about sleep around four months. So mm -hmm. I started pre-writing my post-visit summaries <laughs> because uh, I kind of had uh -huh. an idea of what parents were going to be asking about and wh where the conversation might go. And parents started getting wind that I had these pre-written post-visit summaries for future visits. And they said, yeah, I know I'm doing a fourth month visit, but can I get the six month one? Can I see what's nice. happening in eight months? And I started realizing when, when people were asking for the whole packet, I thought, wow, there's really, parents are really looking for the developmental, um, just a really basic idea of where the child is in development and the Montessori Milestones. framework would be, mm -hmm. how does that then translate into helping us answer our own parenting questions? And mm -hmm. um, I knew that when I got to the place where I realized that I had a foundation for a book that I wanted it illustrated, and I think one of the turning points for me is that I had hired an illustrator for the book, and then I went to the Montessori for Social Justice conference um, in Portland of 2019, and I went to a workshop um, that was being done by Tiffany Jewell, Britt Hawthorne, and Ashley Speed, and they were talking about 
the sort of overrepresentation of white authors, white illustrators in the children's book space. And if we really want to diversify the library, we can't just look at the characters in the book. We actually have to look at the authors and illustrators. And I, I, that really resonated with me. And I was at the very beginning of trying to get the book illustrated. Um, and I realized that, that there was an opportunity that I, I, I didn't want to just have one person represent all children. That just didn't seem right. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to try to um, have one person per chapter. So I ended up having a team of illustrators. And that was a really unexpected turn. And it took a while to put the team together. But um, it turned out really fun. So that I think that would be my biggest unexpected turn was the illustrative part of the book. Mm-hmm. And how about for you, Erica? Well, as an historian, you can't really go into an archive having expectations. You have to have the material speak to you. So that's the problem that, you know, you have to really spend an extensive period of time before you understand what's going on and how you can sort of like trace a cohesive narrative of somebody who's larger than life. Um, I think for me, uh, I mean, along the, uh, my path, it has been, uh, for example, uh, I spent a summer in Chennai at the headquarters of the Theosophical Society. Montessori lived there for almost a decade. And uh, I mean, for me, it was a, it was a really hard summer. It was a super hot. And I was so impressed by a woman was the, uh, she was, I think, 70 and I was 35 when I went. So I was mm-hmm. really, really impressed by the fact that she was living in this environment, which is so different. I mean, it's, it was currently so different from, you know, the US or Italy where, where I live. So, but um, the most unexpected thing was to find out that Montessori was uh, uh, very much in dialogue with uh, the wife of the president of the Theosophical Society, who's an Indian dancer. From uh, uh, you know, a Western perspective, I had no idea that she was much more famous. This dancer is called Rukmini Devi, and that she was much more famous than uh, uh, you know, the president of the Theosophical Society, uh, you know, Annie Bezan or Sidney Arundale. And that, you know, she had an entire center uh, that was much bigger than the Theosophical Society, like a mile and a half away from the Theosophical Society, this beautiful dance school that it's a, like a national foundation now in India. And, uh, and there's a huge Montessori school in there. So I ended up doing observations there. I, I'm not a, train, a trained Montessorian, but I've done observations in Italy and the United States. So I've done observations there. And they also had an archive. And I realized that the whole dance school had to do with... Um, uh, the dance is extremely complicated. It's almost like a fixed torso and uh, lots of movements with the uh, hands and feet. And so there's a lot of training of muscular training, which, as you know, it's a foundation in the Montessori method. So I started digging and digging and I realized that those two were much more in dialogue than uh, what previously... Wow you know, discovered. It's so interesting. Yeah, and, uh, and that this dance school is actually much more, um, I mean, it has a really complex history because of the social class of Rukmini Devi. So it took me a while. Again, you know, a Western perspective. I'm, I wasn't that, you know, prepared with Indian history, contemporary Indian history. So people always look at Gandhi. They look at the Theosophical Society. But there was this whole universe that was, uh, you know, knowing at this point Montessori so deeply was much closer to her than... Uh, than, you know, other scholars have pointed out. So that was, a, that was a beautiful discovery for me. Is any of this in the book? Yeah, yeah, this is chapter six. Yeah, you just need to get to chapter six. Oh. <laughs> I am very excited to get to chapter six. And are there pieces about Gandhi in there anywhere? Also, yeah. Given that it's yes. about pacifism, just a guess here. <laughs> oh, no, no, absolutely. There's Gandhi, there's nonviolence, there's um, Gandhi's appreciation for the uh, game of silence. Uh, he, he compares that to meditation. Oh. Uh, there's Montessori being, uh, uh, again, you know, what, what I also found out is that, I 
mean, I, of course, I haven't gotten to know her personally, but that she kind of considered herself in a couple of letters jealous of Gandhi's, the diffusion of Gandhi's ways of thinking about education vis-a-vis -vis her way in India. Mm -hmm. So it's that sort of like human aspect that has been really fun to sort of... Uh, you know, for me to unveil. It doesn't, you know, I'm not looking at whether Montessori was jealous of Gandhi or not in my book, but it's just fun to sort of like live it there and sort of uh, leave traces of her personality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, to see Definitely. the whole merging of the whole person. Absolutely. Lovely, lovely, wonderful. Thank you both for talking about the unexpected. Um, I'm afraid now that if I go on to the next question that Mariana will say, well, what about you, Elizabeth? What were they <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm wondering if there was anything unexpected. <laughs> well, think, imagining you might turn the question in, in my direction, you know, the first thing that came for me is not something that probably should have been unexpected at all, but it was the enormous generosity, again, of practitioners in public Montessori schools to read, review, and give feedback and thoughts for how to make the work stronger. They are, I work with an enormously busy group of people who are just being asked to multitask in a year of a world pandemic, where now they're adapting and adjusting to changes, you know, moment to moment, day to day. Um, and just the generosity of the practitioners to take time with any part of my manuscript. Um, it was just it was unexpectedly very, very touching. And I realized, wow, I should have asked people sooner and more often because the, the feedback and the ideas that I got definitely were created the strongest parts of the book. And so recognizing that about me to not sort of like have this like fiercely independent piece or like um, that sense of, you know, in, in the first plane that I'm here with my work, but to be more in the sort of second and third plane and um, opening to that collaboration with others, because it, it definitely infused um, the book with all of the strength and goodness. So, yeah. Well that was my that was my unexpected piece. <laughs> funny. I, I would say as, as you were talking, I, another unexpected piece because I know since I already published my book, you two are in the last sort of finale of getting your book published. Right. Was I also am very grateful for a lot of collaborative feedback around around the manuscript and the illustrations. But the what was unexpected was the time that it took to have the book be read by other people. <laughs> give feedback, mm. it changed some things, send it back to the editor, send it to the proofreader, share it back with another group of people, something changed. And that sort of circular round where it never felt like there was a beginning or an end and I was constantly working with my editor and, and the proofreader um, as I tweaked the book, that, was a, that took a lot longer than I had expected in, in making a book. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Are you finding that, Erica, that the, the actual process of creating the book, is, or is it about what you expected coming from an academic perspective? It, it was really hard to publish a book, which is, uh, it's really sad for Montessorians. It's just, uh, you know, there's, I think there's a misunderstanding of what, who Montessori was. So I kept on being bounced back to um, an education series, which I don't belong. I'm a historian. Mm. And uh, historians weren't interested in Montessori. And uh, it really took me a while to convince somebody uh, who, you know, was just a, a lovely person who had a, a much broader perspective into what it is, 
you know, to work in early childhood education. I mean, to think about humanitarianism and early childhood education for many editors was inconceivable how those two categories could go together. And I will yes. tell them, like, this person was working on project uh, that had to do with social renewals of neighborhoods. That's, you know, like she, the first children's house is one of those projects. And they just wouldn't think that expansively to the notion of education. So it's, uh, mm, it's, it's, mm. it's really hard. That's, um, I mean, I have, I, it took me a couple of years and, uh, a couple of years to convince somebody. And, uh, and it, it helped me to a certain extent because it helped me like sort of, uh, make a broader pitch. You know, we're not learning about Montessori. We're learning about pacifism in the first half of the 20th century. And she was a crucial player. That's mm-hmm. the argument of the book. It's just that also, I think it's important, uh, to, to think about, it's just, you, you're fighting against uh, a preconception of, uh, you know, you're thinking of this woman who's just lovely staring at children. You often see like this, you know, photo of her just elderly, like looking at children. And I'm telling you, she was actually somebody who was like 35 and, you know, really going about Rome and doing her own, and you know, beating, being present in a way that was, uh, you know, extremely unconventional at the time. And this is, wasn't the story that most people wanted to hear. Mm. Mm-hmm. It, it strikes me that you have had to embody some of the Montessori energy in getting your in getting your own. <laughs> oh book my gosh! Right to to overcome and overcome these <laughs> obstacles that keep getting thrown up because people can't see what you can see. Right, 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 right. right. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's hard. I think that you know, especially in the U.S., there's a vision of Montessori that is very restricted to education. So it's uh, mm-hmm. hopefully the book is going to change mm-hmm. that. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. We share a little bit about the White Cross. I know that's a big fascination. And, the, you know, there's just that one skinny little article that has made its way around the community. Right. But um, I'm hoping there's going to be more. Right, right, Is that right. Chapter seven. <laughs> no, no, no. That's chapter two. It comes sooner. It's a, it's a really slender one, also. Uh, so, Montessori, during World War I, she had just moved to Spain. She moved to Spain in 1915. And uh, she is called by a North American. Uh, this is uh, uh, somebody who had moved uh, to France uh, at the beginning of the century, and she was doing lots of humanitarian projects to help the people who were affected by the war. And this woman, her name is uh, Mary Rebecca Cromwell, a very well-to-do New Yorker. She uh, starts uh, two Montessori schools in the outskirts of the city of Paris, and she writes a letter to Montessori and says that uh, the Montessori method was a veritable cure for all those affected by the war. And she invites Montessori in 1916. Again, in the midst of World War One, Montessori, uh, you know, takes out a train, I guess. I don't know what she would take, a car? I don't know. But she goes to Paris. <laughs> she walked. She, she walked, walked to Paris. Sure. She walked to Paris. <laughs> and she wants to gauge the validity of her method as applied to these children. And she realizes that, you know, there are some features of her methodology. And uh, this is a key question in the Montessori community that I get all the time. There are couple of features that help children overcome the trauma of war and uh, and that what Montessori does is that she uh, takes up she she uh, looks at these children uh, write up a couple of articles in the Italian press and then she relentlessly tries for the remainder of the war so until 1918 to to get funds for the organization of a supranational organization so every nation involved in the war again this is a, a novel idea, uh, will have branches of this white cross. The white cross is opposed to the red cross because of the uh, blood of the wounded soldiers. Instead, the white cross will focus on the mental wounds of, uh, uh, of, the, of the children. Mm. 
And the project is incredible because it not only looks at the, I mean, first of all, nobody was thinking about, uh, you know, providing psychological mm -hmm. and psychiatric support for children at the time. They were thinking about material support. <laughs> They still aren't. Right, right. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and so what happens is that she also thinks about ways of including uh, uh, some form of support for uh, the women affected by the war, the widows of the battles, you know, of France in this case. Most of the children she observed in these two schools were refugee children from the invasion of the German invasion of northern France. And uh, um, so the women would be engaged in Montessori training so that they would get to be teachers within the schools. And at the same time, the wounded soldiers were employed to be uh, um, working in the Montessori workshop. They would create Montessori materials. Mm. And there's a beautiful pamphlet that is, uh, um, was given to me by uh, the archive, the, American, uh, the Association Montessori International Archive in uh, Amsterdam, where you can see the children visiting the uh, wounded soldier workshop, mm -hmm. wood workshop, and learning about the techniques for building the Montessori materials. And then the soldiers, the wounded soldier, go into the actual classroom and see what the kids are learning. Mm -hmm. So this yeah. is, the, you know, again, a 360-degree project that involves the entire community and that, you know, very much resembles to some of the projects that Educator San Frontier, for example, is uh, uh, organizing in uh, I mean, I'm thinking about the one in Kenya, but, you know, throughout the world. So this is, uh, you know, 1917. It's, uh, it's more than a century ago. And we're still not, we still don't have something that works, you know, as well as this White Cross, this project that Montessori had, which was never created in the end. Nobody gave her the money to mm. uh, sort of create the organization. It's interesting to me how um, the impact of trauma is still something being talked about in the now um, and something important for a lot of public Montessori programs is to not confuse um, what you're seeing in observations, but to know and understand the impact even on brain development of that kind of trauma and um, the, to you know have the Montessori lens on the emerging child in that context. Right. And I mean, the, the central question, I think, at this point would be to really see what feature of the Montessori material. I, I mean, I have a, a, you know, an opinion of what could work and what, what's most effective within the Montessori material for children affected by trauma. I mean, this is a woman who's speaking about PTSD 70 years before the actual definition mm -hmm. of PTSD. Yeah. Yes. yes. I think it has to do with the, I mean, it's not my intuition. It's in, in these letters and it's just you know, not very delved into, I think it's the repetition of the material, that kind of, uh, you know, act of repeating suits the children in a way that allows them to overcome a state of agitation, mm -hmm. Montessori calls it. And, you know, the beauty of a material too, as a, you know, as bright colors, as a distraction too. So those are the features that I figure, but what I think it's missing at this point is, you know, a study that really looks into what are their features of the material that could be, of the apparatus that could be actually you know, suitable for the overcoming of trauma. Hmm. What's your What's your zero to to three take <laughs> on that? I mean, I think that definitely there there are some aspects of the materials that allow, like the materials themselves, elicit repetition, but it's also the environment that supports concentration that allows for repetition. Right. So I think that that's like right. an important aspect of the materials are in within a prepared environment. Um, and I think that there's a, a few different things that help, I think, children, whether they've had trauma or not, to be able to access 
and leave the part of their brain that is in fight, flight, or freeze. Whereas if the child has experienced trauma, they stay in that fight, flight, or freeze longer. So coming out of that, um, I think is aided by the freedom that the children have, that they're not sort of required to do certain things at certain times that allows them to self-regulate and self-direct. Um, and I think that that's true for the zero to three child. It just looks different, right? So we can sort of say, oh, mm -hmm. you know, we should mm -hmm. take the child on a walk, um, you know, in a stroller for, for an hour because it's nice to be in nature. But then the child doesn't really get to direct what they would like to be doing. So if they want to be in nature, having a, a blanket on the grass under a tree, that could meet the developmental needs of the child um, and allow the child have some freedom of choice um, while not sort of having it be adult directed. So I think in the zero to three frame, it is the, the environment I think is beyond the classroom, as I think we all probably would identify that the environment is outside of the classroom, but particularly in zero to three. It includes the home environment, but it also includes just anywhere where the child is. Because in the zero to three space, they're in a lot of much more varied spaces than necessarily as you get older, where there is some level of expectation that the child is in some kind of educational um, space um, for a good portion of the day. Whereas in zero to three, it really depends on what the caregiving situation looks like. But I think we can apply a lot of that opportunity for the child to direct themselves um, in infant and toddler, a lot of uh, mm -hmm. opportunity for the child to feel like they have autonomy and choice, even from the beginning, that allows them to feel safe, that they can say, I'm not hungry anymore by turning their head away from the food. And for the adult who's caring for them to be responsive to that, to not sort of say, okay, well, I'm, I'm actually going to override that and top you off so that you sleep a little better. It's more of, I'm going to be responsive to the fact that you would like some agency to say that actually my stomach is full and I'm going to take your word for it. And if it happens that you're hungry later, well, we can just address that then. So I think that um, autonomy in the environment and independence is a big piece. And then also just that uh, allowing uh, the child to be able to direct themselves. I'd say one of the biggest questions that I get from parents all the time is that they feel guilty when their kid is playing on their own. They're like, I'm not doing anything. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, like I, right. I feel like <laughs> I'm not doing my job. And, um, and so we talk a lot in the parenting groups that I do about that, you get, make a cup of coffee and drink it hot. You know, <laughs> you're, you're allowed to go to the bathroom <laughs> and, and it's actually yeah. quite good for the child to be in their own head mm -hmm. and, and to, mm -hmm. to direct themselves and it's soothing. And anytime I think that you get to a place where we're not activating fight, flight, or freeze, where they feel safe and calm, like not everything's moving all the time and it's not overstimulating, I think it is going to be more situated and suited for a trauma-informed approach rather than not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's <laughs> that's great. I mean, there should be. I mean, what I what I'm inviting to people is is to actually conduct those studies mm -hmm. uh, to see if you know if mm -hmm. what the study could be specifically good mm -hmm. for yeah. this. Mm -hmm. It's interesting when you were talking. I remember one of the best pieces of advice as a new mom that was given to me was, "Don't try to make a happy baby happier." <laughs> right, which is that same instinct of like. Well, you're a little happy now that I could actually make you much happier. Yeah. It's like, oh my word, just like, <laughs> back it up. <laughs> exactly. Because a happy baby is actually telling you something that they, I, I, one of the things that I share with parents is, you know, the difference between the in-womb life and the after-womb life mm. 
There's a ton of differences, but a number one is communication. They didn't have to tell us anything in the womb. They were just fed sort of nutrients through the umbilical cord. They didn't have to say, hey, I'm hungry. And then they didn't have to respond to actually actively eating. Um, But outside the womb, now all of a sudden they have to tell us everything. And so it's as notable if they're telling us something than if they're not. Because if they're not telling us something, we know that if something was wrong, they would. And so we want to (laughs) trust that they actually are okay. And it's good for them to feel okay with themselves. That's Mm -hmm. a wonderful habit. And you can establish that from the beginning alongside lovely moments for bonding and engagement, but also just giving some opportunity with, if you are okay, I'm okay with you being okay. (laughs) Being separate. Being separate is healthy and good. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wonderful. So um, my last question, question for our time together today is about your the hope for your the impact that your book might have on the Montessori community you obviously had a lot of passion going into writing it and what's your what's your hope for what will happen when people read your book in addition to the book I've written uh, several pieces for Italian and American newspapers and what has guided me is the desire to um to have to see more Montessori public schools. Uh, I live in New York and I have a two and a half years old and it's completely impossible financially to be sending my daughter to a Montessori school. It has been uh, uh, you know, a great disappointment. I've spent the last 10 years reading the works of this wonderful person and I cannot you know, physically take advantage of the, the teachings of you know, all the things. I mean, I, I try to do it as a mom in my house and it's so hard. So... What I've been working on is to try to see that, you know, most people think that uh, we should go back to the origins of Montessori. We should go back to San Lorenzo, you know, this poor district in Rome. This woman just took up, you know, some children and educated them. And I, you know, what my book argues is that we shouldn't just go back to the origins. Montessori long li- lifelong project was to work with children who, uh, you know, were at the margins of society. And so that's that's the hope. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, it comes more for from um you know, my engagement with, uh, with uh, popular pieces them from the book itself, but that's the spirit behind the book. That's what, you know, pushed me to write it. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe I'll go next because mind maps right onto that, which is, yeah, uh, as I mentioned in the opening, is, is the idea of access and the idea of if there's a book that sort of shows some pieces for how this could be done, maybe more people will be emboldened to open more programs in New York City and other places um, that will allow access for more and more. If we have just it as a publicly funded option in this country and other countries around the world, I was in a podcast conversation uh, at the end of last season about the comeback of public Montessori in Italy. Um, and for the same reason of trying to, and, you know, Patrice Mercuri situating it in a, um, a neighborhood where at the beginning, some of the more affluent parents were like, yeah, I'm not sure about going there. So this is where this, you know, this school, Absolutely. and we'll, we will all come and share in this, but um, that we cre- we have more resources to start more programs. Um, and then I think the second piece is just hoping that the people who are already doing this work have some ease by being able to take an already created tool that's been tried by other practitioners and continue to build it, but at least have a starting point. Nobody has a blank slate to start with, um, but that we can sort of fill in for the hardworking people that are already so devoted to implementing the method. 
Um, so yeah, hope that it doesn't just stay where, yes. with the people I know. <laughs> yeah. Here, here, you know, here's a napkin. This is to wipe your face. That we have napkins for everyone. Oh, a terrible analogy. But anyway, <laughs> Mariana, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I love the 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 bridge of access um, that hops over to mine. I mean, I really feel like. The time at which people are often first engaging with Montessori as parents is at the preschool level, um, that that's, it's less, it's becoming slightly more common that parents are maybe looking for infant toddler programs, but because the caregiving situation is really dependent on what's going on with the family, it's often starting in, in primary and in preschool. And I, I think that in the zero to three space, there's such a tremendous opportunity to reframe some of the messages about what Montessori is or isn't with parents. Um, mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think that at home, Montessori is often seen as these, you know, Pinterest boards with these beautiful wooden materials and everything. Absolutely. Your house looks pristine like mine never is. <laughs> <laughs> and, Nobody's. And, it, and, and the toys are expensive. And I mean, there's just there to me, I feel like that perspective or that that way of showing Montessori makes it feel very inaccessible. You have to know how to do it. You have to have the right stuff. Um, or you have to be attending uh, what is often a private Montessori program to even be part of it. Mm-hmm. And it, the whole thing just sort of reeks of inaccessibility. And I would love to help reframe the conversation to be actually it's about development. That's what Montessori centers mm. on. It's about what is the child trying to do in their development how do we create some spaces where they're allowed to do that development and remove obstacles in those spaces? And then how do we observe the child to see what it is they're doing next so we can readjust the space? And it can be done today in your home and you don't need fancy stuff to do it. Obviously, there's certain things that can help a child, like a spoon that fits an infant's hand is far more helpful for them than a spoon that doesn't. So having materials that can really help the child are wonderful, but they're not the necessary starting point. And so what I hope to do with Babies Build Toddlers um, with the book is just every single page is formatted consistently. So the left-hand page tells you about the development of that particular age around a concept like movement or language, and the right-hand page gives you some Montessori-aligned ideas of what to do about that development. But if the parent wants to just stay on the left-hand page and come up with their own stuff, that's awesome. It's still within Mm -hmm. this, this framework of the pedagogy. So I'd love to empower parents with the information about development so that they can answer their own questions instead of feeling like they have to talk to an expert or get all this stuff even to get started. So then you're going to be writing Toddlers Build Children? (laughs) I'm not announcing that right now. Okay, I'm I'm thinking about the world pandemic and how the learning environment was situated at home, right? And how under-resourced the family communities were in terms of managing this. And that why wait for another pandemic to, you know, involve um, and integrate families into the the work of the school. So, hmm. Lovely. It feels delicious. Feels like we have a little banquet of books here. (laughs) And... uh, Really appreciate you guys are the first guests for season two of Montessori in Action podcast. We're kicking it off big time. (laughs) Um, And listeners, we hope you'll join us at our celebration of books in December. More information to follow. So thank you both for being on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. It's wonderful. (laughs) Our show is a project of Public Montessori in Action. 
elevating voices in the community to forward the mission. Our host is Elizabeth Slade. Our producer is Isaac Price Slade. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and sharing it with others. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.